Okay, Jesse, I'm still angry at last week's murderer, but I'm excited for a new story from you. What do you have for me this week? When a devoted husband and father disappears while duck hunting, it is presumed that he died during a tragic accident. But when the truth is finally revealed, almost 17 years later, the tragedy turns out to be who he chose to trust and the shocking betrayal that resulted in his murder. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about cheating, yeeting, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. Speaking of Patreon, we are thrilled as always to welcome a couple new incredible patrons. Thanks to Martina W. and Hilary L. for joining the lovers. Welcome, welcome, and exciting news. Andy and I are in studio together today. We are. Which always means that we're going to be slightly more goosey, I feel like. We're still in the afterglow of a wonderful Thanksgiving. If you mean afterglow, you mean my belly's full of tofurkey. Yes, absolutely. I literally, guys, just housed a Thanksgiving leftover sandwich, which was delicious. <laughs> so we hope you had a wonderful holiday and got to be with the people you loved. And to celebrate, we're going to talk about some people who should have been loving, but were killing. I don't know if that's celebratory, but you get where I'm coming from. In the after-holiday glow, we're going to give you a little bit of true crime. We're going to give you a big old leftover portion of true crime to your ear holes. Yep. <laughs> okay, so let's get into I it. I think people have a different section of their stomach separated for that, just like dessert. <laughs> the true crime yes. stomach section? Yes. Jerry Michael Williams, a 31-year-old real estate appraiser who went by the name Mike, had big plans for Saturday, December 16th, 2000. He would start the day well before dawn on a duck hunt at one of his favorite spots in the whole world, Lake Seminole, roughly about an hour from his hometown of Tallahassee, Florida. Mike was a hard worker, disciplined, motivated, and reliable. He put in long hours to provide a six-figure paycheck for his family. An avid outdoorsman, his peace came from watching the sun rise while out hunting or on the water deep-sea fishing. Since the birth of his beloved daughter, Ansley, a little more than a year and a half earlier, he hadn't had that much time for his passion. December 16th was a special day for a few reasons. He got to start his day doing something that he loved, and then he was going to race home to whisk his beautiful wife, Denise, away for a romantic getaway on the beach. The following day was the couple's sixth wedding anniversary. Though Mike and Denise had actually been together for 15 years, by now half of their entire lives as they had been only freshmen in high school when they fell in love. I'm always so amazed by couples who manage to pull that off. Yeah, me too. Like the really, truly in love high school sweethearts. Yeah. 
it's just there's so much change from that time to when you're an adult. Which means that you weathered those yeah. evolutions together, which is not an easy thing to do, whether you get together when you're 15 or you get together when you're 35. Yeah. The passion may have waned a little bit since their daughter was born, as babies and small children are wont to do with their parents' love lives. But Mike was as devoted to Denise as he had been the day he stood at the altar six years before. He hoped that maybe the passion would start to get a little bit of an uptick that night at the honeymoon-style resort that they had booked. Maybe they'd even managed to make a sibling for Ansley. Mike had always wanted a house full of kids, and luckily Denise had agreed that it was time to start thinking about number two. December 16, 2000 started like a dream for Mike, but it turned out to be a nightmare. When someone he trusted betrayed him in the most egregious way possible, Mike Williams became a casualty of love. The nightmare continued for those who loved him for nearly 17 long years before the shocking truth would be revealed. And the answer would finally be provided to all those who had asked, what happened that day on Lake Seminole? And why didn't Mike come home? Big thanks to listener Melissa W. for recommending this one and also sending a link to the book I used for our main source today, Evil at Lake Seminole by Stephen Epstein, which it was a really well done true crime book. It's one of the ones that I talk about that reads like a thriller or fiction. Yep. From the time I started listening on Audible and reading, I was, I could not put it down. So very well done, Stephen Epstein. And if you're thinking, oh, hey, we're back in Tallahassee. <laughs> you are correct. I was actually reminded of this case while reading Ruth Markell's book because she briefly mentioned it. And then I remembered that Melissa had sent me the link for that book and I'd actually already purchased it. So, yeah, I'm in a Tallahassee hole, apparently. I think we'll come out on the other side pretty soon. We'll see. Yes. And also shout out to listener Mimi, who has been talking to me about all of the stuff, all the trials going on with Dan Markell. And she also went to this trial as well. No way. Yeah. So she's like our girl on the inside with Tallahassee trials right now. All right. <laughs> so thanks, Mimi. Without further ado, let's talk about Mike. Jerry Michael Williams was born on October 16, 1969, the second of two sons born to Jerry Jerome Williams, a Greyhound bus driver who went by JJ, and his daycare operator wife, Cheryl. The Williamses did not have a ton of money, but all that they had went into giving their sons a magical childhood, a great education, and creating a solid foundation for their future. While they lived in a modest mobile home, they also had acres of woods to romp in, a giant treehouse, and a big pool for the kids to play and splash in, which it seems like they did no matter how cold it was outside. Yeah. They talked about when they first got the pool put in that it was actually freezing outside because it gets cold in northern Florida. Yep. And Mike was so excited about it that he was swam until he was shivering and his lips turned blue and he still wouldn't get out of the water because he was so excited to have a pool. Mike's love of the outdoors was born at his home, and he became obsessed with hunting after receiving a bow and arrow as a present at only six years old. Now, this was mystifying to his family because neither his father nor his older brother had any inclination towards hunting, nor did they hunt themselves. And it's usually one of those things that's passed down from generation to generation, and he just kind of picked it up on his own. And so they ended up having a family friend help him out and mentor him. And then when he was 14 or 15, he took like a hunting safety course. He was a very responsible hunter. Yeah, I was going to say too, like getting a bow and arrow is kind of amazing. 
Yep. And he he did all sorts of hunting and fishing. Duck hunting was his favorite. And he did use a shotgun for that. But I have a lot of respect for people who do bow hunting. Uh, Yeah. That's insane. Well, JJ and Cheryl scraped together enough money to send their boys to a well-ranked Christian private school called North Florida Christian School, a.k.a. NFC. Scholastically, Mike got B's and C's, his outdoor time costing him the A's he probably could have easily made if he wasn't so busy outdoors constantly. He was social, gregarious, and very popular. A star cornerback on the football team and voted best personality by his classmates, Mike drew attention and friends wherever he went. He was a cute kid, too. He was a good-looking guy. He was blonde with blue eyes, and then as he got older, it kind of faded to brown, his hair. But in all of his pictures, there is this friendly, welcoming, open nature to his face. Yeah. That it makes sense everyone was drawn to him. One such girl was Denise Merrill, whom he met at the end of their freshman year of high school. Denise was described by author Steve Epstein as a whip-smart, pencil-thin blonde who was one of four daughters raised by parents Warren and Johnny Merrill. All D names for their daughters, by the way. She was the second, so it was Deanna, Denise, Deborah, and Darla. Whoa. Warren was an engineer for the Florida Department of Transportation, and Johnny was a stay-at-home mom who definitely had her hands full raising four daughters. Yeah. (laughs) They were a deeply religious family who believed appearances mattered. All four girls were always meticulously groomed and dressed each day and pretty much at all times. They also, kind of like the Williamses, were not super well off. They didn't have a ton of money. Yeah. But they also made sure that their kids were in a really good school and always, even if they weren't wearing brand new clothes, everything was always neat and proper and perfectly clean. Despite being only 15, Mike had already dated a handful of girls before Denise because he was kind of a ladies man yeah. in, his, in his very early teens. I guess girls liked him, man. In the book, they talk about like three different girlfriends he had before Denise. But when he met Denise, it was clear that something was different there. Denise would later tell Mike's mom that it was pretty much love at first sight. Cheryl, Mike's mom, heartily approved of Mike's new girlfriend. She was beautiful, smart, and she also spent most of her spare time performing community service. She would visit nursing homes and she ran food drives. And she's only a teenage girl. That's very responsible and giving for what is traditionally a pretty selfish time Mm -hmm. in our development. There was like nothing not to like. She seemed fantastic. So Cheryl began a tradition that first year that they were together of giving Denise a big, beautiful bouquet of flowers on her birthday, even when she was just a teenage girl. And that tradition carried on throughout their entire marriage. Oh, my God. So cute. So they had a good relationship for a future mother-in-law, daughter-in-law type situation. Uh, Yeah, I'd say if your son brings home or if any of your kid brings home a partner like that. It's just, yeah. You're what like, more can you ask for? Especially if she talks about how she said it was love at first sight and she treated Mike so well. Yeah. And we want our kids to be with somebody who has the values and demonstrates a good sense of character because the people who's around your kids, and I know this for myself, the people you're most around are the people you end up emulating. Yeah. It just is the way it is. So you want that for them. And then you also just want somebody who loves them and makes them happy. Your dad told me a story last night about someone named Tom from high school who was a senior and called the house. Yes. Yeah, but he essentially said that Tom called your home when you were a freshman and he was a senior because he was talking about how he didn't like Tom and Tom was a bad kid. And he said, is this Tom on the basketball team, Tom? 
you scored all those points the last game, didn't you? Yes. And he was like, yeah. And he said, why the fuck are you calling my 15-year-old daughter? Yeah, I was 14, 14, yeah. Yeah, I had a rule that I was only allowed to date one grade level older than me. And that was it. So I could date, if I was a freshman, sophomore. I could date a sophomore, yeah. but I couldn't date any older than that. I mean, it's a good rule. It was a good rule. It was just really frustrating when I was invited to prom and I was the only freshman invited to prom and I couldn't go. <laughs> <laughs> There's worse things in the world. <laughs> yeah, I had a pretty protective dad for sure. So what you're saying is essentially that this is a good relationship and it's a great first, very serious girlfriend. Yeah. And I think that Mike's parents had met and married relatively young as well. So it mimicked their partnership. Exactly. And so they're not thinking like, if you get married later on in life, like my parents did, which wasn't so much later on for my mom, but like later compared to the era. And then like we did, you don't maybe always take your kid's high school partner very seriously. But these parents did because that was the type of relationship that they had. And... So I think she was super jazzed about that. And Mike also met another guy while at NFC, this guy named Brian Winchester, who would become his lifelong best friend. So he kind of met his future wife and he met his lifelong bestest friend yeah. ever at the same time. And these two guys were kind of funny because they were definitely a measure of opposites attract. Okay. Mike was very reliable. He was self-disciplined. He had an amazing amount of restraint for being a teenager. And I think that's probably what drew him and Denise to one another yep. was because they were both that type of kid. Meanwhile, Brian was tall, dark, handsome, and he was like this kind of like incorrigible troublemaker. Okay. And now his family had money in a way that the other two families I've talked about didn't. Yep. And so he often would get into little scrapes. He was picked up by the police doing something minor, petty, wrong. But like because of his positioning, his family's positioning, he always like got out of it. Yeah. But Brian also met his future wife while at NFC. I mean, this is crazy. And she was a very cute girl named Kathy Aldridge. And they began dating their junior year. And pretty soon, Brian, Kathy, Mike and Denise were a fearsome foursome who did absolutely everything together. Yeah. They were truly inseparable. They graduated high school together and they grew up together. They weathered breakups and makeups because they went to college and there was like some dips in deciding to be together. They all attended Florida State University. That was my next question yeah. was, did they all attend school together too? Because that's like... Yeah. They, this is basically like saved by the bell when they went to college. Yeah. <laughs> and they all went to the same college. Oh, my God. Uh, the college years that no one watched. <laughs> so, yeah, they all went to FSU. And then they all launched careers in their hometown of Tallahassee. Whoa. Mike graduated college in 1992 and immediately went to work as a residential and commercial real estate appraiser. His boss, Clay Ketchum, became a mentor and father figure to Mike and called Mike the hardest working man I ever saw. Whoa. Very well regarded in his work and his industry. Yeah. Meanwhile, Denise became a CPA. She went on to work as an accountant with the state of Florida's Board of Administration, where she worked on the state's retirement system. Unbelievable. Smart cookie. Both Brian and Kathy took jobs with their respective family businesses. Brian went to work for his father, Marcus, at their financial planning firm. And they managed a lot of people's money. And they also sold life insurance policies. So his primary job was selling life insurance policies. 
And Kathy worked at her family's printing business. With careers and educations established, soon wedding bells were ringing for both couples. Did they plan their weddings at the same place on the same day? (laughs) No, that would be too much. That would be... (laughs) That would be like when I played with my Barbies as kids and we're like, and then we married twin brothers on the same day wearing the same dress. With the same shade of lipstick. (laughs) Yes, exactly. It's like basically the same wedding was thrown seven months apart. And, And Brian and Kathy were the first to go. Okay. And then Denise and Mike. And Denise, I mean, Mike must have been making a good living. Because she had a two-carat Tiffany diamond engagement ring. That costs a pretty penny. Yeah. Especially if you're going for that name brand Tiffany. Yeah. I don't even know how much that would cost. So on December 17th, 1994, it was Denise and Mike's turn to wed just about 10 years from the time they had met. And, of course, Brian and Kathy stood up with them as their... I think that because they both had sisters and brothers, they were just like their grooms people and bridesmaid. But Denise and Mike had been Brian and Kathy's maid of honor and best man. So intense. Super intense. By all accounts, the beginning of the Williams's marriage was a happy one. They traveled. They hung out with Brian and Kathy. They even mixed business with pleasure with Brian when Brian sold them life insurance policies in 1999. Well, this was relevant because, unfortunately, J.J., Mike's dad, at some point, did pass away pretty suddenly. Okay. And he did not have life insurance, which was really, really hard on... The family? On the family, completely. And now, they were older. The boys were already grown up at that point, but it was definitely hard on Cheryl. Yeah. So, it did not take much to sell... The Williams is on a pretty hefty life insurance policy, to be honest. Even more so after 1999, when the stork brought both couples babies. Oh, my God. The same year. Same year. Kathy and Brian welcomed son Stafford Winchester on February 25th. Well, Denise and Mike's daughter Ansley was born on May 8th of the same year. Whoa. They're pretty darn close. close. Yeah. That's pretty wild. It's like just a little over two months. I was going to say, it's probably like right when she started telling people that she was pregnant. You know what I mean? And And then she's like, like, I gotta get going. Gotta get one up in me now. (laughs) So Mike was so, so happy, just absolutely over the moon to become a father. And that was around the time that JJ had passed away. Okay. So it was a really bittersweet moment because, of course, his father missed out on being a grandfather. Yeah. But it was actually one of those things that brings back the family. Yeah. Especially Cheryl. I mean, like I said, they had been together their entire lives also since they were had been teenagers, I believe. So to lose him, and they were only in their 50s. Yeah. She thought that they had decades more to spend with one another. So I think the birth of Ansley gave Cheryl something to live for. And it was really good for the whole family. While Mike and Denise both adored Ansley and loved being parents, Denise's postpartum period was not easy. So she definitely had some form of postpartum depression. And I think there was maybe some postpartum anxiety mixed in there. And and this was still the time, like even 20 years ago, it wasn't getting diagnosed as often. And people didn't know what to say. I mean, I still think today there's a stigma around it when there shouldn't be, especially for women, because we're told that 
we should just love our kids so much. And it's supposed to be this like blinding, happy, loving moment. And then you feel like there's something wrong with you. Yeah. If you're suffering. Yep. So if you guys are suffering, definitely get help. I know we have some new moms out there listening and there is no shame in saying I need a little help. No, even just talking to your girlfriends. Exactly. Anything that can help. You'll be really surprised of how many of them went through or are going through the same exact thing. Yep. Honestly. And I think for Denise, it was whatever it was like made her really reliant on him. So it was like she was almost paralyzed to do things for herself. She was supposed to go back to work full time after a certain interval. She could not do that. She could not like make food. She would call him home from the office to make lunch for her, to bring her food. She yeah, would so even, she's got like crippling anxiety. Yeah, yeah. And so she would even drive to near like a gas station near his office. And then he would drive out to pump gas for her if she needed gas. I know it's like such a fine line too because you want to help the person that you care for, but it's also enabling. It was definitely enabling. And I think that the feeling in the office was that he did so well and he made so much money and he was just one of their, if not their best appraisers. that They like let him leave all the time just to deal with it. Yeah. And of course his boss being a friend and a mentor really helped to, his boss would later say that he was actually impressed with Mike for being such a wonderful and supportive husband. He said, quote, we all wanted to be married to Mike Williams. I mean, we all needed Mike Williams in our life. Oh, just so giving. And Mike did everything in his power to help Denise feel better. He even moved the family into a really gorgeous new home. Like this place reminds me of what I thought a mansion was when I was little, like brick, like kind of looks like a Tallahassee version, but like kind of you squint at it. it could be like the Home Alone house. Okay. Which I don't know about you, but for me, that was like the idea of a fancy house. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was not far from where I grew up in Illinois. I know. I remember. It would be so crazy to live in that house because I heard that people just year round are like in front of your house taking pictures. Yeah. I could not handle that. No, it's so annoying. There's a lot of houses like that in LA too, obviously, that are filmed at. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. in the poor watcher house. Those people. Oof. Yeah, so he did everything he could. He moved the family into a gorgeous new home. He was so patient with Denise. But by the summer of 2000, which had been longer than a year since Ansley had been born, he was wondering how much longer that this rough period of their relationship was going to last. Yeah. It's hard because it's not necessarily about the relationship. No. But here's the thing. She had always been very independent and she was still working part time. She hadn't gone back and she seemed like she was one of those people who needed to be working full time. It would have actually been better for her mentally. And so she was like half in, half out. And Andy, this part, and I understand like not having sex for months, obviously. I waited like a full, like I think four additional weeks to have sex after I was cleared with my first kid. My doctor said, like, wait as long as you want. He told me that some people waited 10 months because they were just too freaked out. Yeah, which is totally understandable. But now they had gone over a year and a half without having sex. So at some point in her pregnancy, they stopped having sex. Yeah. So now Ansley is, I think, like 14 months. But if she can't, like, pump gas, like, how do you think she's going to be able to, like, be intimate? Or like well, let he go just enough. Did not know what was going yeah, on. Yeah, of course not. Because so she just hard. wanted nothing to do with him. And one of his colleagues, he tried to talk to one of his colleagues who had a baby. Okay. Just like trying to understand the postpartum yeah. situation because he had the awareness that he did not know what it felt like, obviously. 
And it was a female colleague, obviously. And she said, yeah, I don't know about that. Like, maybe she's cheating on you. Oh, shit. And he was like, oh, my gosh, I hope not. So he was starting to have some doubts. Yep. She at that point was kind of gaining back some of her independence. She was going away, doing things on her own. And that's why he was starting to think maybe this isn't just postpartum depression. Maybe she's using that as an excuse at this point. Yeah, which is really sad. Yeah, because she was doing stuff like, okay, they had a rule where they wouldn't spend more than like $100 or something without telling the other person what they were spending the money on. Okay. Just to keep a good budget. And he saw on their credit card bill that she had gotten a $3,000 cash advance. And she said that it was for pot. It was for marijuana. What? Yeah, so that she could make brownies to treat herself, basically, to, like, self-medicate. And he's like, that doesn't seem right. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money for pot for pot brownies. I mean, I don't even know what $3,000 worth of pot looks like. Uh, a lot. Unless you're, like intending on selling it and no one needs three grand a pot no but then you could get busted for intent to sell it's exactly like that whole thing seems stupid yeah so we don't know what she was really using that money because that seems ridiculous but now he's also worried about his daughter being home with her because if she's buying three thousand dollars worth of pot to make brownies is she high taking care of the baby yeah or like where is all of that pot yeah exactly so he was getting nervous about that he told his boss about it and he's like don't you think that's strange and his boss clay was like yeah, but you know, you've been together for a really long time. People go through ups and downs. They go through changes. She's had a big change in her life, just weathered the storm. He yep. kind of thought it was a red flag, but he was like, hopefully you'll just move through this. That's really nice. Yes, he was very supportive. But another punch in the gut occurred when his company had, essentially they were doing an appraisal course in New Orleans, which is super fun. And they were like, we'll pay for Denise to go with you so you guys can make it kind of a work pleasure trip and it'll be super fun. And Denise said no. She said she didn't want to be away from the baby. But then he later found out that she actually left Ansley with her own mother. And she went to Orlando, Florida with Brian and Kathy and partied with them. So he's like, wait, you didn't want to come. Is this like a threesome situation? It could be. Jessica. I'm not going to give away anything. You hate spoilers. He also found out that the bar that they had gone to was like real seedy and it was known for being like the type of place where you can score hard drugs. So he's like, what is going on with How did he find out about that? I don't really know. I don't know if he found out from Brian or if he eventually she came clean. I'm not sure. If it was innocent, there's no reason why Brian wouldn't say like, hey, man, wish you had been with us when we went to Orlando. It was super fun. And he'd be like, excuse me? Yeah. So that could have been how we found out, too. Also, again, they have tons of mutual friends. They all grew up together. So it's possible somebody else told him. I don't really know exactly how he found out, to be honest. Whoa. Yeah. So he channeled his unhappiness into work. And he tried to sneak away with his best friend, Brian, to duck hunt as much as he possibly could. Because that was his stress relief. That was his outlet. So twice during 2000, Mike had hunting mishaps that could have cost him his life, which might have been because he was a little distracted, obviously, about his personal life. Yeah. The first was when Mike slipped and fell into something called a gator hole, which I'm guessing is a hole created by a gator. Okay. The gator was not there, but it worked like quicksand. The mud started literally sucking him in. So scary. Super scary. And he thankfully could grab onto a branch and pull himself out like that scene in The Princess Bride. Yeah, you have to do it like strategically. 
Yeah, he actually lost his rifle in the hole. Whoa. Because it was like in order to grab the branch, he had to drop his rifle and it was sucked down completely into the mud. That's so scary. Yeah. So he was lucky to survive that. And then secondly, he had been out over Thanksgiving weekend spilling his guts to Brian about his marital woes. And he fell overboard while they were hunting on this boat. And Brian was able to just immediately like reflexively grab him and pull him back onto the boat. But it can be really dangerous, especially if you're wearing your waders, because your waders can fill with water and pull you down. So he was lucky to survive those two situations, though the last one, I guess the water was so icy cold that he ended up getting pneumonia for a week after. Even that quick. Even that quick, because obviously he was soaking wet when they had to go back. And his boss said that that was the first time he ever had to take a week off of work because he was so sick. Whoa. Despite all of this, Mike was deeply committed to his wife and his family, and he was very much looking forward to 2001 and the future. So he had already spoke to his boss about becoming a partner in the business, and he hoped to run for local office in the years to come. He really wanted to make a difference civically. Also, it was really cute. Every Thursday, Nick and Cheryl, his brother and mom, would bring pizza over to Denise and Mike's house so they could all watch Friends together. Oh, my God. I think it's kind of cute. I'm glad that we can binge and I don't have to wait for episodes. But guys, TV watching, if you're a younger person, used to be an event. It used to be an event and you ha- used to have to have patience. You'd have to wait every week. Yeah. And I remember having like when Sex and the City ended, I had a big party at my house. so We could all watch it together. It used to be a thing. So every Thursday they would get together and Cheryl didn't know what was going to go on with like more babies with them. That's not something she would have ever asked or gone over boundaries with. And she knew that Denise had had a hard time following the birth of Ansley. So she didn't want to push it. So she was really happy when they were watching Friends and eating pizza together. And basically Mike said something like, are you ready to be a grandma again or something? She was like, oh. And Denise was like, oh, not yet. I'm not pregnant yet, but we're going to start trying soon. So definitely Cheryl thought things were looking up with the couple, that they were talking about having baby number two. Yep. And this was Thursday, December 14th. So it was three days before their anniversary, which was going to be on a Sunday. Yep. And they were also excitedly talking about this fancy resort that they were going to go to. So they were going to leave after he got back from duck hunting on Saturday. And that's when they were going to start thinking about baby number two. So everything seemed great. Cheryl was overjoyed. She left her son's house that cold winter night with the warmth of the thought of another grandchild. Little did she know that that would be the very last time that she would ever see her beloved son, Mike. Stop. Ever again. Wait, that's so sad. It's very sad. This year, you can prioritize what matters most when you share the gift of health from Everlywell. Choose from at-home lab tests like food sensitivity, women's health, or men's health, or vitamins and supplements because love and health are all you need. Everlywell is digital healthcare designed for you with personalized results and accessible tools for long-term health. With over 30 at-home lab tests and high-quality vitamins and supplements, you'll be able to find the perfect test for you or your loved ones. The Women's Health, Food Sensitivity, and Celiac Disease Screening tests are only a few of the options. 
Here's how it works. Everly Well ships products straight to you or your loved one with everything needed in one package. If you ordered an at-home lab test, the sample can simply be collected at home and shipped back to a certified lab in the prepaid envelope included with the test. Digital physician-reviewed results are sent straight away to your preferred device in just days. If you ordered vitamins and supplements, you can start adding them into your daily routine right away. It's so simple. Over 1 million people have trusted Everly Well to support their health and wellness goals. And now you can help your loved ones do the same. This is a company that I'm so excited to share with you guys. One of the best things I've done for my health is to take advantage of more extensive testing to really learn how my body processes food. The fact that Everly Well makes this testing so easy and at home is really a game changer. Absolutely. And I love that the women's health test measures key hormone levels and helps women understand what's going on with their bodies that may be impacting how they're feeling day to day. This is such valuable information that's so hard to get otherwise. Absolutely. And they also do a thyroid test. And since that runs in my family, I got to eliminate that as a possibility. And it was something I didn't think I had, but it was something I was worried about. And now I don't have to think about it until, you know, another situation arises. So cool. Yeah. The gift of health has never been so easy to share than it is this holiday. For listeners of the show, Everly Well is offering a discount of 20% off an at-home lab test at everlywell.com slash lovemurder. That's everlywell.com slash lovemurder for 20% off your next at-home lab test. everlywell.com slash lovemurder. Gifting is hard. Bombas makes it easy with socks, underwear, and t-shirts that feel good and do good. They feel good because they're thoughtfully designed with the softest materials. And they do good because for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone in need. Andy, Bombas really do solve all of my gift-giving needs. Even my pickiest friends and relatives cannot deny how soft and comfy Bombas products are. And everyone loves the fact that this is a company that gives back. Bombas socks, underwear, t-shirts, and slippers are cozy upgrades to everyday basics and the perfect gift for everyone on your list, including yourself. Oh, absolutely. Guys, we are in Uruguay, or I'm still in Uruguay. Andy was just with me, and I literally made her wear my slippers because they are so comfortable. Both of us are running around with our little matching slippers. Yeah, I like did not want to take them off. <laughs> and that's because Bombas uses materials like premium Pima cotton and ultra soft, never itchy merino wool in their socks and t-shirts and fuzzy Sherpa linings in their slippers. No wonder merino wool is my favorite. Bombas holiday collection puts a modern twist on traditional festive colors and designs. Think rich purples and greens, geometric snowflake design, sweater-inspired textures, and retro ski patterns. With family sets, you can match with your family and friends in exceptional comfort and style. Hello, frameable holiday group photo. And did you know that socks, underwear, and t-shirts are the three most requested clothing items in homeless shelters? That's why Bombas donates one item for every item you buy. So far, Bombas has donated over 75 million items of clothing. That's a whole lot of comfort and a whole lot of good. Give the good this holiday season with Bombas. Go to bombas.com slash lovemurder and use code lovemurder for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash lovemurder, code lovemurder for 20% off. Bombas.com slash lovemurder, code lovemurder. Cherie Warren was a young mother looking for a fresh start. 
Recently divorced, she had moved out, found a great new job, and even found a new boyfriend. She was happy for the first time in a long time. But on a crisp October evening, after a long day, Cherie said goodbye to her coworkers, left the office, and was never heard from again. All eyes quickly turned towards her ex-husband. He had previously lured another woman into the woods, beating her with a tire iron. But there was another man that piqued interest of investigators, Cherie's new boyfriend. He was a former reserve police officer with a dark history of sexual violence. The two men closest to Cherie swore they loved her and promised to protect her. But did one of them murder her? In season three of the hit true crime podcast, Cold, host Dave Colley digs into what really happened to Cherie. Andy, I am so excited for season three. I know that season one was one of the most spellbinding true crime series I've ever listened to. Yeah, he went so deep. It was unbelievable. I think there's like 40 episodes or yeah. something. It's very impressive. It's still, I think, has one of the only episodes that I remember actually screaming, like screaming during the episode as if I could change the outcome somehow. So, so thorough and so sad. But Yes, I'm really, really looking forward to this season. And hey, Prime members, listen to the Amazon Music exclusive podcast, Cold, in the Amazon Music app. Download the app today. Mike had left Denise in the pre-dawn morning on Saturday, December 16th to go duck hunting on Lake Seminole. Brian, his best friend, had been supposed to accompany him, but he had canceled the night before, mm. stating that he had a conflict with Kathy's family, which he did. He was supposed to go hunting with Kathy's father instead of Mike. Hmm. You seem skeptical. I'm very skeptical. I don't know if you can tell. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Oh, I might have missed up. <laughs> missed those secret cues that you were sending me with the hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, so Brian had been supposed to accompany him, but he had called to cancel the night before. According to Denise, Mike had decided to go on his own anyway. He really wanted to go. And he had promised to come home around noon so they could get on the road for their anniversary getaway. But noon had come and gone. At 2 p.m., Denise was getting really worried. She could not reach Mike on his cell phone, and something just obviously did not seem right. He was a very reliable man. Yeah. Denise called her father and Mike's friends for help, and everyone theorized at that point that maybe his boat had broken down. Maybe something happened. He could be, like, floating in the lake. So all of his friends, including Denise's dad, Warren, and this other guy named Damon, who had been kind of a mentee of Mike's, ended up driving down to Lake Seminole, where they found Mike's Ford Bronco parked and empty, but there was no boat and there was no Mike. At this point, they involved the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission to help find the missing hunter, because that was their jurisdiction. Search and rescue were deployed, and more of Mike's friends and family joined the search, including his brother Nick and his best friend Brian. The search went into the night, and Marcus, that's Brian's dad, and Brian ended up discovering Mike's boat floating in the water at 2.30 in the morning with no sign of Mike. Like upright? Yes. Okay. It just looked kind of abandoned. And it had been floating. It hadn't had a dropped anchor. Yeah. Divers were called, but the job was difficult because the water temperature had reached the mid-40s, so it was very, very cold. 
So they were unable to stay under the surface for very yeah. long because they might get hypothermia. Yeah. Throughout the Christmas holiday, the search continued, with Mike's mother, Cheryl, growing increasingly frustrated at the lack of progress. And it was not for a lack of trying. According to one report, there was over 735 hours spent searching for Mike, 400 by boat, 285 by land, and 50 by helicopter just flying over the area. They ended up conducting this search between December 16th when he went missing through February 10th of the following year of 2001. Oh, my God. So this was pretty extensive. I mean, they were not giving up. The best the authorities could theorize was that somehow Mike had fallen over into the lake like that time he did around Thanksgiving. And maybe his waders had filled up with water, pulling him down and causing him to drown. However, even drowned bodies from the waders are prone to floating. Yeah. And because he just had those two incidences before, don't you think he obviously would have been overly cautious if he was going out on his own? But you never know. Yeah. I mean, I don't know much about hunting in general. Like, I don't even know what a waiter is. He also, this was unusual for him because he usually liked to buddy. Not just for safety, but just for companionship. You're out there for hours. Yeah. What's the point of... Yeah, it's supposed to be a fun activity you do with people you care about. It's like going to play tennis by yourself. (laughs) Yeah, that one's pretty difficult. (laughs) Yeah, it just didn't seem like it was going to fit. Because also, at some point, though, his body would have floated to the surface. So it just didn't make sense that he wasn't turning up after all of that time. So then they were wondering if maybe he had been eaten by an alligator. Whoa. I mean, it is Florida. It's Florida. It's possible. They just did not know. They didn't know how his body would disappear. They thought maybe he's tangled up in weeds. That was the only thing. Like, either he's tangled up in weeds and his body is stuck at the bottom because it's tangled up in weeds. Yeah. Or he was eaten by an alligator. And there's not much they can do during that time frame either because of the temperatures. They did their best. They sent divers down, but it was really difficult. Due to the fact that there was absolutely no foul play detected, like, they looked at his boat, they processed his car, there was no sign that any blood had been shed. That there was, yeah, that there had been anything of malevolence there, that they had to just chalk it up as a tragic accident. (sighs) But Cheryl definitely did not believe that he had just simply drowned. Yeah, she didn't buy it. She did not buy it. She actually still believed that he was alive out there somewhere because she was definitely holding out hope. Yeah, it's his mother. Yeah. What's Denise thinking, though? Denise thought it was an accident. She believed that it was an accident. And this caused a big rift between them because Cheryl went on Christmas Eve to Lake Seminole to pray and to ask for a message. And the message she received was that he was not there. Now, she believes that that message from God meant that he was alive somewhere else, that something had just happened to him. Maybe he bumped his head. Maybe he didn't know where he was, that he was out there somewhere alive because the voice said to her, he is not here. You will not find your son here because they were still looking for a body. And so she was determined to interpret that as he was alive somewhere. Yeah. And this became the rift because in late January, Denise suggested holding a memorial service for Mike, assuming he was dead. And she wanted to do that because she wanted to move forward. She wanted to have answers for her daughter. And Cheryl took that very poorly. Yeah. She was like, 
Uh, he has not even been gone for two months, and you're planning his funeral. Yeah, we don't have a body. And we don't have a body. Funeral. Yeah, like she was disgusted, and they're she, in two totally different mindsets. Absolutely, very different. Where Cheryl's like, I'm fighting to find my son, hopefully alive, and I believe he's still alive. And Denise is like making the arrangements. Denise is like, what's done is done, and I have to move forward with my daughter. I'm pretty sure that you mentioned that. They were sold some life yes, insurance policy. They have policy. a sizable, yes, life insurance policy, which may have something to do with her wanting to get him declared dead and move on with her life. Mm-hmm. Also, like, move on with your life? I'm sorry. When you have, I think, Ansley's less than two years old. She's like a year and a half years old. And you just had crippling postpartum anxiety. You're just trying to move on with your life without your partner who was there for you at every beck and call. Like, I think not. There's something sus going on. It's pretty fishy. Yeah. So originally, Denise backed down from the fight and said, fine, we're not going to talk about this. If this is how you feel, we won't do the memorial service. But then two weeks later, her father went to Cheryl's house. So this is Denise's father. Yeah. And said, basically, yeah, we're going to be holding a memorial service at our family's church with or without you. You don't have to come. Wow, that's really nice to say to the mother of the deceased. Yep, that's what they said too. It was Cheryl and Nick. It's so very godly. The mother, the mother and the brother of the deceased. And he said, it's time for our daughter to move on. And this is only in late February. Barely two months. It's barely two months. And I know that everyone grieves differently, but time to move on to me would be like, a year or two years yes. after a very certain death when you're sure the person is dead. Two months when you haven't even found a body. At two months, I would still be out there looking for Nathaniel. Oh my God, same. I mean, you know how crazy I get when I can't locate Fix my something. husband. <laughs> <laughs> I know. You need to put one of those Apple tags on him. <laughs> and he's usually just deep in conversation. Yes, and I like, I, I, I go feel, into sheer panic. I feel Dan because I'm exactly the same way. Andy notices that I don't have my phone on half the time we're together. Yeah. Nathaniel has to call you when we're together. I get so immersed in whatever is going on in front of me. And Dan's exactly the same. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) We're just designed to drive you crazy. This is why Andy was so excited when I ended up with Nathaniel because he's so responsible. And now she knows she that you're okay. She can call my keeper (laughs) instead and vice versa when I'm with you and not him. (laughs) So they decided to go. Cheryl Nick decided to go to this, even though they were unhappy about the circumstances of this. But they got really upset during the memorial service because they were referencing how Mike was in heaven and how he was with our Lord now. And she's like, we don't even know that he's dead. And so it's just this really frustrating experience. And horrible. That would be horrible, especially if you're at all religious. Yeah. Like I couldn't imagine actually having like a process of how you like deal with death and afterlife and heaven and like not having a body to do a wake service with. Like there's all of these steps that are really important for people to have any sort of closure emotionally with the passing of a loved one. It's just unfathomable to me that she had to like go sit through that ceremony. It's maddening. Yes. And it's also, she felt like she had a message from God directly. Yep. Which was that he was still out there, that he was not at Lake Seminole. So she's like, but this is going counter to what I believe and what I feel like my direct relationship with God told me. And this is when there started to be a divide between the families. 
because they'd always gotten along really well. I yeah. mean, think about it. They were kids. They, these adults watched these now adults, but children grow up together. Yeah, but doesn't that make sense that it would be death that would divide them this much? Yeah, and also I think that's made it all the more heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah, this is just, it's very sad. And the most bitter pill to swallow for Cheryl was how fast Denise and those around Mike seemed to want to move on. Within only weeks of Mike's disappearance, Marcus and Brian Winchester, as well as Denise's probate attorneys, were doing everything in their power to get Mike declared dead so that Denise could cash in on $2 million of life insurance money. Wow. Which I could understand if she was totally destitute. Like if she's like, I still love my husband and I believe he's out there, but in the interim, our family can't pay its bills. Yeah. Then I can understand why there would be a rush on it. But she was not destitute. She still had income coming in from her job because she still had a part-time job. And how he got paid as an appraiser was that he got some percentage of every invoice and so even after his death, he received over twenty to $25,000, I believe, in unpaid invoices over like the first couple months that he was gone. Hmm. So she did, she was making that income. So it wasn't like she was going to not be able to pay her mortgage if she did not rush to get this life insurance money. Their efforts met a snag, however, when they were told that there was not enough evidence that Mike was actually dead to issue a presumptive death certificate. Yeah, there isn't, guys. There's no body. There's no body. There's no proof that he was actually dead. There was no bloodshed. There was no weapon. Nothing. Yeah. The only thing that they have is his history as a really loyal and responsible family man, that it would be completely out of character for him to do this. And they did find his wallet and everything back in his Bronco. So it didn't seem likely that he had just walked away. But still, again, they don't have any evidence that he died. Well, luckily for Denise, only three months later, a fisherman discovered a pair of hunting waders in the exact same spot that they had searched while looking for Mike. I think it was in around the same area-ish as the boat had been found. Okay. So divers went back in at that point and discovered Mike's flashlight as well as his hunting jacket. And the jacket even had Mike's hunting license in the pocket. But nobody. Nobody. How convenient is it that they have now had definitive proof that his body was in the water with that hunting license in the pocket? Is that really definitive proof, though, if you don't have a body? I don't know. I mean, he would have had to take off all his clothes and then just disappear with no money, completely naked. Yeah, but where's his body? That's the point. Well, the jacket did not have any rips or tears in it that would be consistent with an alligator attack. All of the items were discovered near alligator feces, which led the authorities to believe that perhaps an alligator really did eat Mike. Oh, my God. Are you serious? Yeah. And, I mean, they don't necessarily think that it was like an alligator attack per se, but it could have been one of those things where he bumped his head, he was unconscious in the water, maybe he even started drowning or he was drowned, and then an alligator ate him. No thanks. Absolutely no thanks. That's not how I would like to go. Yeah, I mean, that alone will make me never live in Florida. <laughs> now, there were some issues with this theory. Number one being that the waiter's 
especially, but also the jacket and flashlight did not appear to have enough algae and sediment on them to have been out there for six months. Very fishy. Yeah, this happened six months. So they were discovered six months after Mike went missing, but only three months after they were hitting some road bumps on getting him declared dead. So the other thing was that herpetologists, which are scientists that study reptiles. Okay. I didn't know that. I would have thought it was a reptiliologist. (laughs) A reptiliologist. Or a reptologist. (laughs) It's a herpetologist? Herpetologist. Wow. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it's spelled like herpes, like herpetologist. Herpetologist. Yeah. Interesting. So they said that it seemed very unlikely that an alligator would eat him at that juncture because they're cold-blooded and they essentially hibernate when the water gets really cold. They basically lower their metabolic rates and like pop their little snouts like just with enough air and then like essentially like go into this like coma state. Like bears. Like bears. They're hibernating, but they're hibernating in the water. Yeah, they're big underwater bears. So the fact that the water was so cold seems very unlikely that they would be actively eating because they'd be hibernating. Yeah, they'd be like, "Uh, I'm good. Yeah, (laughs) I'm all set. Thanks. See you in the spring. Now, some other people said that it had been unseasonably warm in the days leading up to his disappearance but given that the divers couldn't even dive because the water was so cold this seems like a stretch nonetheless this was enough for the legal system the clothes with the license in them and the waiters and even if they didn't they thought like at that point scavengers must have eaten his body and the government declared mike dead the cause on his death certificate was accidental drowning not eaten by a gator Eaten by a gator was not was not the an option. I guess not. You can't tick that box. Well, Cheryl was aghast. Uh yeah. She she also didn't find any of this out until after it had happened. So she had no idea until much later that they started trying to get him pronounced dead only weeks after he went missing. She felt very strongly, like I believe you feel, Andy, that the evidence was planted. It was drippy drop dropped. Yeah. And that Given that, if Mike truly was not alive, if he was dead, then something very, very bad must have happened to him. So she continued to push the authorities to investigate the mysterious disappearance. But she also went on. I mean, she did. Cheryl was a warrior. She did absolutely everything she could to keep the spotlight on his disappearance. She reached out to reporters to have them cover the story. She rented a full-page ad in the newspaper to put his picture in it. And when one of these articles was run in the Tallahassee Democrat in August of 2001, many friends and family called to congratulate Cheryl on getting the story out there. One person, though, who was not calling to congratulate her was Denise, her daughter-in-law, who immediately demanded that Nick and Cheryl come to her house for a meeting. Like a friends and popcorn meeting or like? No, this was like, this was not a friends and popcorn meeting, sadly. So like a mean meeting without popcorn? Yeah, this was a popcornless sad meeting. Any meeting without popcorn is a sad meeting. So once they arrived, an ugly confrontation broke out. Denise said that she was furious about the article 
She said, I don't ever want to see Mike's picture in the paper again. I don't ever want to know anything you're doing about Mike again. I have to get on with my life. Okay. Yeah. So Cheryl, of course, has said, if that was Ansley in the lake, would you just leave her there? Would you just stop trying to fight to get to the truth? Yeah, no. If that was your child? not. And she said, I would believe the authorities. And then she told Cheryl and Nick that if they persisted in trying to get a criminal investigation going, that they would lose Ansley, that she would permanently take the child away from them. Another grandparent, like, getting screwed by somebody who has ill intentions, it would seem. Yeah, it would definitely seem. So on Denise's side, she explained this vehemence as Mike being in the news as hurting Ansley. Okay. That. Why is she watching the news? Isn't she like a two-year-old? She's two. Yeah. Why is she watching the news? Like she doesn't need to watch the news. She barely understands what her parents are saying. Like, no. Exactly. So she was like, it's confusing to Ansley and we need to have consistent messaging. Like daddy's dead and he's in heaven. And we're not, we're not going to have grandma Cheryl coming over and saying, no, your daddy's out there somewhere. We don't know. She's like, it's confusing. So when you push for criminal investigations and you get him in the newspaper, it muddy. That's basically what she was trying to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think that's a good excuse either. I think that you would want more pictures of your child's missing father. The baby saying daddy too at two years old, like, it's like, I don't know. It's like give the baby a little bit of time to like adjust and mourn and like you don't need to be preaching to the baby that daddy's dead. I know. Oh, God. That's horrifying. Yeah. Like obviously when she gets up to be a little older, like Alden's age now, she's going to ask questions and then you can kind of start to have conversations with them. But like the kids too. She's a a toddler. That's exactly why Cheryl thought that this was all bullshit. Weird. Yeah. And of course it made her suspicious. And sad. It's her kid. And her grandkid now. Yeah. Well, the relationship between Cheryl and Denise was not the only one crumbling in the aftermath of Mike's disappearance. Best buddy Brian's marriage to Kathy hadn't been on super solid ground in the months leading up. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. Do I sense a little Brian and Denise moment happening here? I can't tell you. You're the worst spoiler right now. I just am like, (laughs) could you guys get any more cliche? Meeting up in Orlando. (laughs) Orlando, the spot for lovers. Orlando spells lovers backwards. (laughs) Like, come on. Uh, Yeah. Really appropriate timing, too. Uh, Well, yeah. So apparently Mike's disappearance really, it essentially put the nail in the coffin because... Kathy was very distraught about this. I mean, they had all been best friends their whole life. So she's part of this, too. She's now not the best friend. She's not the wife. But she's, like, just about, like, the second closest to them. And they all were friends forever. So she was really upset constantly. She was crying. She was worried. She was worried about Denise. She was worried about Cheryl. And Brian did channel his energy and his grief into searching. So he was part of the search. If he wasn't working, he was out there helping with the search efforts. But when he came home, she wanted to know everything that happened. What did you find anything? What's going on? How are you feeling? Let's talk about Mike. And he said to her that he didn't want to talk about it. He's like, I've been out there all day. I'm doing that. I don't want to talk to you about it. And she was getting upset. And then when 
essentially, like, she continued even after the search stopped to want to talk about Mike and figure out what happened to him. Yeah, she's probably coping. She's coping. This is how she's coping. He started screaming at her to just get over it, that he's dead and that he's been declared dead and you need to just get over it. So already she was pretty much done because the way he was responding to her in this aftermath was extremely rude. Yeah. So, I mean, again, like there's devil's advocate where you can say people grieve separately and maybe he's exhausted and it was too much for him. Who else is she supposed to talk to about it? I mean, I guess she could go to therapy, but like no. he's out searching for his best friend. Wouldn't you think that he would want to like spend a couple minutes with yeah, just the love giving of his her life? the down low yeah. on what's going on? So yeah, it got really bad between them. So in September of 2001, Kathy took Stafford and ended up moving in with her parents and their divorce was finalized in early 2003. The year after that, in 2004, Kathy remarried a coworker named Rocky Thomas, whom she had fallen in love with, and the couple eventually welcomed two little girls, Stafford's adorable half-sisters. Oh, So I'm really glad Kathy got a happily ever after yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. Well, time marched on, and Denise, like Kathy, moved on as well. She was awarded $2 million in life insurance money shortly... Yeah, $2 milli, which I think is more like... 3.3 in today's money. So that is a good chunk of change. She invested that in the stock market and bought some sweet pieces of property at the advice of Brian and his father. Oh. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. By Valentine's Day 2003, Denise was openly dating once more. She dated an old high school classmate for a few months before moving on to her boss, a single father named Charlie Bunker. The relationship ended abruptly in July. Denise told Cheryl that Charlie had turned into a stalker who was writing her threatening letters. So she ended up reporting him to their superiors at the Board of Administration, as well as seeking a restraining order. She failed to mention that the breakup might have had something to do with the fact that Brian Winchester had ambushed the couple while they were attending an accounting conference in Atlanta, Georgia, and threatened to kill both Denise and Charlie, claiming he had a gun in his pocket. Why? Why do you think, Andy? Because he's jealous of Charlie. Yes. So he was going to kill Denise as well. I mean, Brian is extremely unhinged. We are going to get into it at length. But yes, there had been a relationship going on. We will get into how long and how it has started later. But it was clear to Charlie at this point that obviously something had been going on with yeah. Denise and this guy. And he, like, Brian is now demanding, like, I'm going to kill myself. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill him unless he leaves. And Charlie was only too happy to say, bye-bye, crazy. I'm out of here. They were there collectively at an accounting conference. Yeah. And he was like, my job's not worth this. She's not worth it. I'm gone. He went back to Tallahassee. And apparently, Brian stayed with Denise for a week after that. Yeah, he's a single parent. Yeah. Like. He's got to save himself. Yeah. Yeah. No pussy is worth that. I would say this was another edition of don't F your coworkers. Please don't F your coworkers. Don't, don't F, F your coworkers. coworkers. Please don't, don't F, F your coworkers. coworkers. <laughs> Exactly. It always seems like a good idea, and it never is. It's basically like shots. <laughs> it always seems like fun. Yeah, but shots, like, aren't awkward. Like, maybe they're awkward the next day. <laughs> no, I guess it only depends what you do after you drink the or shots. Or how many shots. <laughs> how I mean, I've had, like, two peppermint shots each night, and I've been totally fine. I think we mentioned this last year, but I'm very pleased that we are now in 
the season in which I can coerce Andy to do Smirnoff peppermint vodka shots with me. Scratch and sniff, baby. Guys, the bottle is scratch and sniff. Scratch and sniff. It's glorious. It's amazing. <laughs> Highly recommend. Kids can enjoy the scratch and sniff. Moms can enjoy the shots. <laughs> we would like to say that we did not ask our children to scratch our vodka bottles. Scratch and sniff. All right. So, yeah, Charlie was like, I'm out. So it seems likely that whatever Denise said about him being a stalker, him being crazy, yeah. was a cover up so that if he says anything about the fact that she clearly had been boning her late husband's best friend, she could be like, oh, no, he's a stalker. Yeah. He's the crazy one. Yeah. Yeah. She's covering her tracks, which is clearly a sign that she's a liar. And she knows what she's doing is wrong. Well, even though Cheryl did not know about this particular event, she had picked up on the fact that Denise and Brian were sneaking around with one another. People were reporting seeing them all over Tallahassee together by the fall of 2003. Now, at this point, too, even though Brian had wilded out, it's possible that they had gotten together after Mike had died. It would still be weird, but it would be less weird than them having an affair. So we don't know at this point whether they got together after he it's passed two away. years after. Yeah, but, you know, things happen. I mean, gosh, like, I've heard of people turning to each other when somebody they both love. Yeah, there's, like, movies about that and stuff. Yeah, it was the, the Hunter Biden got with his brother's wife. Remember that? No. Yeah, it was kind of a, a thing. After his brother and her husband died of a brain tumor, and they broke up since then, but they were together pretty seriously, I think. And both have acknowledged that it was a trauma response later. Legend of the Falls. Vibes yes, yes. So, yeah, this is not an unknown phenomenon. Yeah. But it does lead people to have the question of when exactly this relationship started. Yeah. And how soon? Because if he had divorced Kathy and then... Six months later, one thing led to another. And that had been, what, like a year and a half after he yeah. had disappeared? It would still be a little eyebrow raising. Yeah. But... Depending oh. on how much Botox you have. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it basically depends on how high your eyebrows can go with or without Botox, <laughs> given the different situations. So it wouldn't have been that bad if... But nobody knows. All we know is now it's the fall of 2003. So now it's been almost three years since he's been gone. Yeah. And they are being seen all over town together. Yeah. But again, she's widowed. He's divorced. They're not doing anything wrong. I mean, everyone was a little like, that's kind of weird, but whatever. People have to do what makes them happen. I think that Cheryl was the only one that felt truly betrayed by this. That her son was gone, that these people are saying that he's dead and that they're seemingly happy together. And she has no idea where her son is when this relationship started between these two people that were supposed to love him best. Yeah. And the fact that Brian was supposed to be with Mike that day and he conveniently called out. And the only person who could verify that he had called to cancel was Denise. Yeah. And is she still not allowed to see her granddaughter? Well, no, she had walked it back. So basically, they had ended up having like a very careful detente at this point. Okay. So the relationship is tense, but it was like all of these grandparents we've talked about, they have to be very sensitive with dealing with a person who's able to take visitation away from them. Yeah. So she was kind of keeping all of these suspicions close to the vest. Yeah. 
And she even acknowledged that she knew about their relationship when she was inviting both Brian and Denise to attend her other son, Nick's September 25th, 2004 wedding. Okay. So she said, essentially, we know you guys are together. You are Mike's best friend. You're Mike's wife. Ansley's our family. If you want to be together, that's cool. Come together to this wedding where Ansley was supposed to be a flower girl. So big of her. Very big. It's like she has her reservations. She has her own gut feeling that something's not right with these people. But she'd rather keep her enemies close yep. at that point. Yep. Which is also just strategically smart. Unfortunately for Nick and for Cheryl, when Ansley started going down the aisle, and now she's like, I think like maybe five. Yeah, at this that point, sounds right. She had like a freak out or a tantrum or something. Like she didn't want to be walking down the aisle with everybody looking at her. Yep. As kids are wont to do. I mean, I feel like eight out of 10 of the weddings I've been to, the flower children or like ring bearers have cried and tried to run off to their mother's arms. Yes. <laughs> and it makes sense. Yeah, it's like really scary. Yeah. yeah. I loved that shit. You love being a flower girl? Yeah. I was the ring bearer. I didn't get to do it. I think like all of my aunts and uncles were married before my parents. And so by the time I was born, there was like no one else to get married. Yeah. So I didn't get to do it which was such a bummer. I think I would have liked it. But yeah, in any case, Ansley ended up freaking out and running off and they just left. They didn't stay for the reception. They didn't stay for the rest of the ceremony. They were like, okay, she did her part, we're out. Wow. Which was very disappointing. The situation only worsened, coming to a head in January of 2005 when Brian Denise told Cheryl that if she continued to push for an investigation and therefore, they basically, okay, things got worse because in early 2005, Brian and Denise held a summit again. And Brian essentially said, you're telling lies about us. And she goes, what are you talking about? And it was because she kept pushing for a criminal investigation. Yeah. And it had been mentioned that they were a couple and that connect the dots yourself. Yeah. That maybe we should look into anyone them. can. Yeah. And essentially they said, if you do not reach out to the authorities and tell them that you no longer want to push this investigation forward and that you believe his disappearance was an accident, then we will really cut off contact this time. We've threatened it, but this time we really will go through with it. So fucked up. But Cheryl refused to back down. Nick was there too, and they got into a genuine fight about it, and Brian was getting involved. And he was yelling at her to just drop it. And she was like, he's my son. I'm never going to stop fighting for him. And also, you know, why don't you tell me? Tell me what happened to my son. And they're like, that's it. We're done. You're never seeing her again. And it seems likely that with Brian in her life, Denise now could go forward with it. Like maybe if that hadn't been her boyfriend. Because the first time it was just her and she threatened it, but then she backpedaled. Yeah. And now this time... She's empowered by him, by She's his crazy. empowered by Brian to absolutely hold steady yeah. that she wasn't allowed to see Ansley at all. I love that he has any say on it. Yeah. What do you have to do with this situation, bro? Yeah. Well, he ended up having some say as her stepfather because in early December of 2005, the dagger was further pushed into Cheryl and Nick's hearts when Mike's wife, Denise, married his best friend, Brian, just short of five years from when he went missing. Wow. Unsurprisingly, the Williamses were not invited to attend. Yeah, no. Cheryl worked tirelessly to keep Mike's case in front of the public and law enforcement. She wrote 
hundreds of letters to the governor and other government officials. She hit up reporters and journalists. She called detectives. And this badass even picketed on the street. She would put up signs with her son's face and say, have you seen me? Do you know what happened to me? And she would go to Denise and Brian's church, like when they all the church was being let out between the earlier morning service and the afternoon service. And she would stand out there and she would get yelled at by priests to get off property. And she'd be like, it's public property. I can pick it here. And she would go into their neighborhood and do it to make sure they had to look at Mike's face every time they left their house. Unbelievable. That is brass balls. No, it's amazing. Yeah, the strength to do something like that. I'd like to think I could be that person, but I'm terrified of confrontation. I would do it. You would do it. <laughs> you would do it. This is why we're friends, because <laughs> you would absolutely do Without it. Without hesitation. This is why I need you to, because... I'd be like, I want to do something like that. But I, you're like, well, guess what? Get your sign. We're going picketing. Get your legal pads out, Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do this. Well, law enforcement agreed with Cheryl. There was definitely something rotten in Denmark or in Tallahassee, as it may be. They did not trust the Mary widow and her new husband. Yeah. Also, just details were not adding up. Mike's boat had been found in an area that was surrounded by tree stumps, making it impossible that it could have blown to that area from the middle of the lake. There was no way it could have just ended up there if he was out. Yeah. It was clearly pushed in from the side of the lake where Mike wouldn't have been hunting or fishing. It didn't make any sense. So there was that that they looked into. They also now, after further examination, did fully believe that the items found after the fact, six months after his disappearance, had most certainly been planted. Yeah. Their suspicions deepened when Kathy, Brian's ex-wife, came forward first to Cheryl in tears and then to the police, tearfully admitting that not only had she suspected Brian and Denise of having an affair before Mike disappeared, but that Brian had no alibi. He had told investigators that he had been home with his wife and that he had missed going hunting with his father-in-law because he had slept through. And she said that that was absolutely not true. He hadn't been home when she woke up and that she had not actually seen him until after 4 p.m. when he showed up late to her family's Christmas gathering in Cairo, Georgia. Whoa. Yeah, in fact, he had been late. They were supposed to leave no later than 2.30 or something, I think, or or they had to leave early to arrive there at 2.30. I'm not sure exactly what, but she had waited for him, and she was so mad that she and Stafford had to go on ahead of him, and she had no idea where he was. Kathy also provided the investigators with a copy of a letter Denise's ex-boyfriend Charlie had written her to Kathy in August of 2003. It read... Denise and Brian have been leading a double life that few people are aware of. You need to be watchful of their behavior because they have been dishonest with you for the past two and a half years. Bunker indicated that he was aware of shocking behavior between the pair and claimed Denise had been cheating on her husband with someone that she had met in a class in Atlanta. So it was easy for her after her husband's death to start a bizarre affair with your then husband, Brian. That relationship, he wrote, was not a normal affair. It involved decadent sexual behavior with various people, strippers, and other sordid acts. Whoa. 
Bunker shared with Kathy how Brian had confronted him and Denise in Atlanta and held Denise captive for an entire night under a death threat to Denise, himself, and one of Denise's friends. Brian told her that he had taken pictures and film of Denise performing in sexually explicit circumstances on different occasions over this two-and-a-half-year period, and he threatened to send that information to you, that being Kathy, Denise's parents, and also post it on the internet during that confrontation. He told Kathy he was providing this information so she could understand how false both Denise and Brian have been with you and the type of atmosphere that your son could be exposed to. Yeah, I think most importantly for the kid. Yep. Bunker implored Kathy to pay close attention to Denise and your ex-husband as they were extremely meticulous, self-serving, and scheming. He told her they were now back together and who knows when the next blow-up will occur. Hopefully no children will be around when this happens. Wow, that's really big of him to write that. It is. And I think that's why she was saying that he was writing threatening letters. Yeah. Because he wrote that letter to Kathy. Now, Kathy and Ryan were already divorced. Yeah. But this was before Denise and Ryan got married. Unfortunately, there was just no physical evidence tying the duplicitous duo to the disappearance. At the moment, they were a united pair, married and raising their children together, enjoying the spoils of $2 million and what it could buy you in Florida in the early 2000s, which, again, is more like $3.3 million. So sadly, the case went cold. But that all changed in 2016 when Denise and Brian's relationship imploded. Uh, I mean, yeah. (laughs) You know, they say... uh, you lose him like you got him. Yeah. Usually they're talking about women who are okay being with the other, the other woman. Essentially, they're with a cheater. And then they're like Pikachu face when the guy cheats on them. Yeah. Well, it sounds like the way you got him was messy and violent and scary. And I think that's how she lost him, too. After a decade of marriage, the Winchester's marriage came to a violent end after years of issues. According to Denise, Brian was addicted to alcohol, pornography, and sex. She had had it with his benders and romps with sex workers. 2015 and 2016 had been very, very bad, like rock bottom, bottom of the barrel years for Brian. Denise had hit him with a divorce settlement that left him with nothing because she basically said that all of the insurance money and anything that was purchased with that was her property and not his. Yeah. So she's like, sorry, you get absolutely nothing. And then I think in the middle of all of this, while they were negotiating this divorce, or even it might have been the event that precipitated it, Stafford, who is now a teenager, had apparently gotten into Brian's cell phone and he found lots and lots and lots of photos of basically a sexually explicit nature depicting Brian in the act with a variety of sex workers. Wow. Who were clearly not Denise. And he was completely disgusted. He's a teenager. This is his father. And he ended up, I believe, showing the pictures, but in the very least just telling Denise Ansley and Kathy about it. And he moved in permanently with his mother, Kathy, and refused to speak to his dad. So he lost his son, he lost his wife, he lost all of his money, and to make matters even worse, in the middle of all of this, Brian's mother was diagnosed with a rare and aggressive form of stomach cancer and told she only had months to live. Jesus. Yeah, I have very little sympathy for this man, but 
this is absolutely a man who has lost everything and has nothing more to lose. And that's exactly when men are the scariest. Yeah. And most dangerous. Yeah. And most dangerous is when especially and like it's really anyone. It's men or women. But historically and statistically, it is especially white men of middle age when they've lost everything and they feel like their backs against a wall that they can behave in a very scary fashion. And he absolutely did. So he began to stalk Denise in early August of 2016. And he even kidnapped her at gunpoint. He went out drinking all night at a TGI Friday's. Which, don't get me wrong, that sounds like a good time if you're not planning to kidnap anyone the next day. Kidnap your ex-wife. Mm -hmm. And then he snuck into her vehicle, I believe. And when she got up to go to work, he like popped up behind her with a gun and said it was the only way that he could get her to talk to him. Okay. And he implied that she was like, are you going to kill me? And he was like, no, I'm going to kill myself. He was planning on ending it, but he wanted her to have to watch, it seems wow. like. But it was really, he said he wasn't going to kill her, but I do think that the plot was a murder-suicide. And she managed to talk him down. Good. Because she knew him so well. And be like, I think we should call your father. We can work out our marriage. We can give it another shot. Maybe your dad could help counsel us. I have to get to work. Maybe we could just meet up after work and talk about our relationship. And maybe with your dad, it could help us. And he was like, really? Do you think so? And so she managed to basically trick him and talk him off the ledge and go and drop him off where his vehicle was. But she had been on the phone with her sister when this all went down, when he pulled the gun and told her to hang up. So her sister knew something was very wrong and was able to track her down to where I think she had dropped Brian off. And at that point, Denise had been planning on going through the plan. She was going to actually like go to work and then meet up with him. Why? Call the cops immediately. Well, that's what her sister said. Good. Her sister gets in the car with her and she's shaking and sobbing. She's clearly traumatized. I mean, rightfully so. That's a horrifically scary situation to yeah. be in when you have somebody that you know is not mentally well yeah. with a gun. So she was coming down from this and her sister's like, are you insane? You have to go to the police right now. We have to go to the police right now. And she actually actually did have her go to work. And then after her sister was sure he wasn't monitoring her because they were afraid that he was going to do something scary or to her if he saw her go to the police station. So she like went to work kind of like to have a cover and then ended up going to the police. Going to the police was probably, in the long run, not such a great idea for Denise. Because unfortunately for her, the police cared maybe a little bit less about helping her and more about solving the cold case that had plagued the community for 16 years. The authorities had long suspected that Denise and Brian were behind Mike's disappearance. And now that the marriage was over and had ruptured so violently and with such animosity, it was clear that not only would they legally be able to have one flip on the other because they could testify against one another if they're not married. That also it seemed likely that they would want to turn yeah. on one another. Yeah. And the weakest link was certainly explosive Brian, not steel-willed Denise. Yep. So like this guy has nothing left to lose. He's clearly unhinged. Yep. If he's resorting to this behavior, we can get him. We can definitely get him. 
So step number one was bringing the man with nothing to lose even lower by arresting him for kidnapping. Good. Which was easily done. Yeah. Given Denise's testimony, there was witnesses. Obviously, her sister was a witness. Yeah. On May 4th, 2017, Brian and Denise's divorce was finalized. As Brian's October trial for kidnapping approached, he decided to spill his guts in an effort to get a plea deal and someday have the opportunity to repair his relationship with his son. That's what he was going for. Over the course of several weeks in August and September of 2017, Brian's lawyer and the assistant state attorney, Andy Rogers, worked to hammer out a proffer agreement, which is essentially when the state hears all of the information that an informant or a defendant has to offer, and they figure out how much that information is worth. What kind of deal are you going to get given that information? Which is exactly what's happening right now with Katie McBanawa yep. in the Dan Markell case. Yep. Literally the same, like what she's, she's in the proffer agreement process right yep. now. In exchange for the full truth of what happened to Mike and any subsequent testimony at any co-conspirator's trial, Brian was given full immunity for his role in Mike's murder, and they would agree not to seek a life sentence on the kidnapping charges. So he's still going to go away for the kidnapping charges, but he's going to get off scot-free for Mike's disappearance, and they cannot seek life without the possibility of parole for the kidnapping charges. That's the deal that they hammered out. Okay. So Brian took that deal, and he was sentenced to 20 years behind bars for the kidnapping. Okay. And they felt comfortable with that because he was at this point 47 years old. So he would not be eligible for parole until he was at earliest 64, 65. Yeah. So they felt like that's almost a life sentence. Yeah. Really? And if the information they gleaned from him, which they already knew, so they knew it would, would bring some semblance of closure to Cheryl, Nick, and Mike's other loved ones, as well as make sure that anyone else, <coughs> Denise. Yeah would be prosecuted, then it was worth making a deal with the devil. Yeah. Within days of Brian's sentencing and pretty close to the 17th anniversary of Mike's disappearance, the authorities held a press conference. Special Agent Mark Perez announced that law enforcement now knew definitively what had happened to Mike Williams. He had been murdered. Shit. They announced that. They had given Cheryl a victim's advocate 24 hours before the press conference to tell her privately and with help first. He confirmed that human remains had been found and already DNA matched to prove conclusively that it was indeed Mike who had died on the day that he had vanished 17 years before. What the press conference did not reveal was who had ratted, Brian Winchester, of course, and what that meant for his co-conspirator who was about to go down. So here is the very sad truth of what happened to Mike on the day that he was murdered by his best friend in the entire world. At four in the morning, Mike and Brian met up to caravan to Lake Seminole to go duck hunting. They basically said, we're going to meet up because usually they shared the same car. Yeah. And it was Mike's boat. But Brian said, I have to go to Kathy's family thing, family thing yeah. in Cairo. And he had to go back to go on his romantic getaway. So they're like, let's do a drive in separate cars so we can each split up afterwards and immediately go where we need to go. So that made all sense to them. Brian told Mike that he should put on his waders before getting into the boat because they didn't have much time. They were running late and they each had engagements afterwards. So they had to hurry. When they were in deeper water, probably about 
I don't know, little more than 200 feet from the boat ramp. Brian told Mike that there was something wrong with his motor. He's like, there's this weird noise. I'm getting like, you should come check this out. So when Mike got up to check, Brian shoved Mike with all of his weight and knocked him overboard. So at that point, he has his waders on. So they're filling with water. He's panicking. And Brian thought he was just going to drown. He just thought like, I'm going to push him over. His waders are going to fill with water. He's going to drown and I'm not going to save him this time like I did last time. Mike is struggling. He is drowning in the water. And Brian starts circling the boat around him so he can see him and make sure he drowns, but far enough away that Mike cannot grab on to become saved. Miraculously, Mike was able to free himself from his waders. So he gets them off. And now he's struggling to keep his head above water and he manages to cling to a stump. There was a stump in the water. So he grabs onto it but like the stump was a little lower. Yeah. So his mouth and head are just like barely above the water and he's screaming for help. And instead of help, Brian drove the boat close enough to Mike, but still out of arm's reach, pumped his 12-gauge shotgun full of ammunition. And as his best friend screamed for help in wide-eyed terror, Brian pointed the gun directly at Mike and shot him in the face. Oh my God. It's horrific to think about and it's really sad that Cheryl had to hear yeah that detail because no matter how old your babies are they're your babies and to think about your baby being betrayed trying so desperately to survive and this person that they had loved since they were a teenage er and trusted shooting them in the face when they're asking for help it's deplorable and did Denise know yes so she'll say she didn't but we're we're going to get into that when she goes to trial later that he said she said about this all. So Mike began to sink and he didn't want his body to be found, obviously, because then it would disprove the drowning thing. They would have let his body been found had he just drowned. Yeah. But given that he was just shot in the face. Yeah. There is no... That's a murder. That's a murder. And, and if his body is found, obviously, they know that it was foul play. Those people... Denise and Brian would have found out a lot earlier. Now he needs to just make the body disappear. So he tows Mike's corpse back in and he ends up basically heaving his body into this dog crate that was in the back of Brian's pickup. And then he pushed the boat back into the water to float away, which is why it was found where it was found. It was stopped by the tree stumps from floating out further into the lake. Yeah, because that's where it got to. And so then he was planning on leaving Mike's body in the dog crate in the back of his pickup trunk while he went hunting with his father-in-law. Oh, my God. So that he had an alibi. But he was supposed to meet his father-in-law in a Marshall's parking lot, I believe. And he drove straight there, but his father-in-law was gone because his father-in-law said, I'm, I'm going to wait until this certain time period. And if you're not there by then, I'm going. Yeah. And that's what he did. So he's like, shit, 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 shit. I just lost my alibi. So he's like, okay, I'm going to go home now. And I'm going to sneak into bed with Kathy. And hopefully she was sleeping really steadily. And she won't know I wasn't here. So he like left Mike in the back of his truck, snuck into his house and like snuck into bed and was like, oh, oh, no, I missed going hunting with your dad because I overslept. And she's like, what? That's wait, no, you weren't here. And then he's like, oh, I have to run some errands. I'll be back later. And he walked out and there was blood 
running out of his truck because Mike was obviously bleeding and it was coming out through his truck bed and on his driveway. So he starts panicking. He gets the hose and he's like spraying it clean. He's like, okay, I got to get some, I have to do something with this body because the plan was that he was going to drown so that he had just panicked and shot him. So he hadn't expected to have to get rid of a body. So now he's freaking out and he doesn't know what he's going to do. So he ended up, I think he stopped and like bought some materials in which to bury him. Like he got a shovel and a tarp or something. And then he ended up going to Car Lake, which was another smaller lake that was about four miles from his house and only five miles from where Mike had grown up, where Cheryl lived. So the water level at this lake was extremely low. So his plan was he was going to try to drag him as far in to like where a puddle was and bury him there, hoping that the water level would rise again and he'd be like at the bottom of the lake. Okay. So that was the goal. But then he was exhausted and he's like, I cannot pull even on the tarp his 170 pounds of dead weight to the middle of this pond. I'm too tired. So he went essentially like in but closer to the edge of the pond. Okay. And so he started digging. And when he started digging, all of a sudden he started feeling this like insane pain and these like insane stinging sensations. And it turns out that where he was digging the grave there were fire ants so like hundreds of fire ants were working their way all the way up his body while he's trying to dig this grave so i think we have a new favorite animal and we're gonna call them karma ants wow yeah so he's describing this for the authorities this picture of him panicking there was this part where mike's body's in the back seat and he was at a stoplight with a state trooper that he was like oh my gosh they're gonna know he is going through all of this and they're like well why why would you do this and of course the answer was Denise which we're going to get into it because I want to talk about his testimony and it's during his testimony that he really talks about their relationship so he does all of that and he hopes that his wife isn't going to see the fire ant stings all over his body and then he goes to Georgia and has a family event like nothing happened So after Brian confessed and a deal was struck, he led the authorities to Mike's resting place. After 17 years, it was no easy task, but they were able to locate Mike's corpse. This was rough. This was very difficult for them because there was a lot more water at that point. So they had to try to cordon off and drain just one part of this lake to be able to dig. And they got backhoes in there and they had a bunch of workers working to delicately manage the situation. But they had just drained this place that was a home to certain amounts of animals. So they were getting attacked by water moccasins and eels. Oh, my God. The valiant workers and forensic technicians who were trying to do this for a good cause said it was like hell on earth because there's just like eels and water moccasins coming out of everywhere attacking us. Oh, my God. I hate eels. I don't like eels either. Ugh. Their courageous efforts did pay off. The police discovered a shockingly well-preserved body. 98% of Mike's bones were able to be recovered. Whoa. Yeah. X-rays showed that Mike's skull had been riddled with dozens of tiny, dense objects, which was the birdshot from Brian's shotgun. Mike's wedding ring, the symbol of his love and commitment to Denise, was still on his finger. The discovery of Mike's body was devastating for Cheryl. 
against all odds, she had held out hope that Mike was still alive out there somewhere. <sighs> Someone else who was likely disappointed that Mike's body had been discovered was his widow, Denise. Yeah. I'm sure it was particularly devastating for her on May 8th, 2018, when she was finally arrested for first-degree murder as she left work to go celebrate Ansley's 19th birthday. Oh, my God. <sighs> on December of that same year, Denise went to trial. The star witness against her was her ex-husband and lover, Brian Winchester, who again was not being charged for murdering his best friend in exchange for testifying against Denise. On the stand, Brian revealed that he and Denise had been conducting a long-term affair at the time of Mike's murder. They had actually been sleeping together before she and Kathy even got pregnant with Stafford and Ansley. Oh my God. There is some question about Ansley's paternity. Whoa. But she looks so much like Mike, and I guess all their baby pictures were so much alike that even Brian said he, even though he was sleeping with Denise when she got pregnant, she was also still sleeping with Mike, and he believes that Ansley's is Mike. But they mentioned it. Obviously, it's up to Ansley if she wants to get a DNA test and no one else. So it's not really our business. So there was a question about it, but we do not know. So it had started just about three years before the murder and four years before Brian got divorced from Kathy. One night in 1997, Kathy, Denise, and Brian apparently were out without Mike at some point. This was not even the Orlando trip because this was way before the babies were born. And they began talking about sexual acts while at the bar. And there was something that had occurred. You were not wrong about some sort of threesome action happening between them yeah. because Kathy did reveal that Brian had threatened her as well with releasing, I guess, some sort of sexually explicit pictures or video of her and Denise. But Kathy's role in this was minimized. It was not an ongoing threesome type of situation. It sounds like it was like uh, everyone got drunk in a bar and they made out or something. Yeah, 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 I yeah. don't think it was like a, a long-term three-way relationship or even an ongoing sexual relationship. Just like relationship. pushing the boundaries when they're drunk and out. It's like, about like, yeah, and I'm not like saying that this is okay because they're all married, but like I think this is more they all got together with their spouses as a teenager and this was maybe some safe experimentation yeah, yeah. going on, at least on Kathy's part. So he said at some point the three of them had had this like really sexual conversation that kind of lit a fire between him and Denise. And so without Kathy's knowledge, he and Denise kind of kept that conversation going and they ended up having phone sex for hours. And then the group also went to a concert together. It was a Sister Hazel concert. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Whoa. So they were going to a Sister Hazel concert and Mike and Kathy were parking the car. And that was like the first time they made out while their spouses were parking the car outside. Wow. That's so low. So low. So eventually these, the sneaking around and the hours of phone sex turned into real sex. Yeah. During Denise's lunch break, he said, this is what he testified at trial. He said, it snowballed really fast. We started meeting in hotels. We started meeting during the workday. We started meeting whenever we had the opportunity. He digressed to point out that Mike was a workaholic, something Denise was not pleased about. But that gave them ample opportunities, he said, to get together frequently and have sex. Sometimes Denise would travel with Mike to his work conferences, he noted. Brian would occasionally make the trip as well, separately and secretly. 
He and Denise would enjoy their trysts while her husband listened to lectures in hotel ballrooms, blissfully unaware of what was going on behind his back. Oh, my God. That is so scummy. Yeah. Unbeknownst to Mike, Brian and Denise also took their own trips to Destin, Panama City, South Beach and New York. Oh, soon they were foregoing their lunch hours and meeting up for brazen sex sessions at both of their houses. And if pinched for time, they would just bone in a car in the Home Depot parking lot. Oh, classy. classy. He said that the sex was wild and they began to indulge in all of their kinks and every desire. Brian said, the more we were together, the more we wanted to be together. But Denise had been raised religiously, and she did not want to get divorced. It would hurt her parents and her pride. But most of all, she could not bear the thought of sharing custody of Ansley. Moreover, if she divorced Mike, she would not have any money. With Brian's help as their trusted family financial advisor, it was very easy to convince Mike to up his life insurance policies. Brian said that Denise said it was better to be a rich widow than a poor divorcee. Wow, that's so fucked. That's super fucked. All in all, the murder plotting occurred for just about nine months before Brian killed Mike. It's normal incubation time, you know? For a hell baby. Seriously. They went through several iterations of how they would do it, and Brian was inspired by Mike's two hunting mishaps earlier in the year. So when Thanksgiving happened, he was like, shit, I could have just let him drown because he kind of reflexively saved his best friend. And so he was like, oh, well, that might be the way to do it. And they talked about it and they decided on it. And in fact, they actually had planned on doing it the week before. They were supposed to do it the Saturday before that happened. And Mike called and canceled on Brian and said, Denise doesn't want me to go. So she was clearly having a change of heart. Yep. And Brian called her and he admitted that he wasn't very happy about it. He was like, we've planned this for nine months. We've talked about it. We kind of came up with a plan finally. Now you're backing out. He's like, it's fine. You're either in or you're out. If you want to be with me, then you have to be in. And it's your choice now. Or we cut off the affair and we don't kill Mike. And like life goes on as usual. And then she called him and she's like, no, do it do it this Saturday because I don't want to go away with him because I don't want to have sex with him. Wow. (sighs) So Brian went out and he shot his best friend to death while Mike clung, scared and confused and betrayed to a stump in his favorite lake. Brian, I mean, we have very little credit to give this guy, but he was an emotional mess when he was testifying. Good. He was clearly racked with guilt. He sobbed as he described how he killed Mike. The judge even had to take a recess so that Brian could pull himself together. He was clearly a man who needed to come forward and release this because he felt terribly. Yeah, he had like powered through for almost two decades. And it was pouring out of him like an avalanche. Yeah. In stark contrast, Denise at the defense table did not bat an eye. She had no expression whatsoever while he's talking about their relationship, while he's talking about their cheating, while he's talking about her saying, yep, it's go time, kill my husband. She did not emote at all, and she just was a total ice queen who stared ahead coldly. Her defense team argued that there was absolutely no physical evidence tying her to the murder. I don't think that they could find any text messages. They couldn't find anything that was very extra conclusive that she had been a part of this. 
And they argued that the only evidence that tied Denise to the murder was the word of a jilted husband and ex-lover who happened to also be a convicted kidnapper, confessed murderer, and known liar, which is a pretty compelling argument. They could argue that he was jealous she was moving on and he was trying to F her life, as well as get a deal and a lesser sentence on the kidnapping charge. But there was a lot of circumstantial evidence, including the fact that only Denise benefited financially from Mike's death, not Brian. Yeah. There was like some other things, too. There was letters that she wrote afterwards. It was like a couple of years, I believe, afterwards that kind of referenced what they had done in an oblique, almost religious way. Yeah. And talked about moving forward and what they needed to do and how they needed to live to earn God's forgiveness. There were just other factors, too. I mean, Kathy recorded a phone conversation where she had a very abnormal reaction to hearing that Brian had insinuated to Kathy that they had both murdered Mike. So there was things. There was like definitely some circumstantial things that make you go, hmm. But there was no physical evidence. Yeah. So that was a good argument. The trial concluded after four days of testimony. The jury then deliberated for eight hours before delivering their verdict. What do you think they said? Guilty as fuck. <laughs> yes, Denise Williams, because she went back to Williams, by the way, after her divorce from Brian, was found guilty on all charges, conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, first-degree murder, and accessory after the fact of first-degree murder. Good. According to the jury, it was Denise's total lack of emotion that caused them to connect. A juror later said, how can you not show any emotion? There should have been at least a tear. If Denise were truly hearing about these events for the first time, others chimed in, she would have conveyed at least some emotion. Instead, her demeanor was flatlined. Yeah. They were also swayed by the letter that I mentioned that very much suggested that she was in the know for something, felt guilty for something. Yeah. At sentencing, Cheryl spoke of her heartbreaking journey to get justice and answers for her son. She said, this is, guys, I just have to warn you, this is emotionally devastating. And this is from Stephen Epstein's book, Evil at Lake Seminole. She described her personal crusade over the next 17 years to find her son, making telephone calls, putting up missing person signs, compiling her copious notes, having people post on social media, paying for billboards and ads in the Democrat. I stood on street corners, waving my picket signs with pictures of Mike on them, she said. I was cussed out by ministers for being too close to their church. Cheryl told the judge how state and local officials had failed her time and time again. I wrote 2,600 letters to the governor of Florida Jesus. asking for help in finding my son. I begged Fish and Game to do a criminal investigation. They told me Mike drowned and got eaten by alligators and there was no need for an investigation. They laughed at me and called me crazy. Nine months after Mike disappeared, she said, his wife, Denise, told me if I continued to seek a criminal investigation, I would lose Ansley, my granddaughter, Mike's only child. Denise might as well have waved a red flag in front of a bull. I knew that she knew where Mike was or what happened to him. She said, Judge Hankinson, I am a fighter, not a victim. I love Ansley, but Mike was my son. After Denise's ultimatum, she said, I became even more determined to find the truth. If I had not done what I did for 17 years, Mike's disappearance would never have been solved. Yep. It took me three and a half years to get FDLE to open an investigation into Mike's disappearance because the Winchester and Merrill families pushed the theory that alligators had eaten Mike. 
Fish and Game and FDLE should have known that alligators are ectothermic. They don't eat in cold water. Instead of investigating, they chose to ridicule and call me crazy and tell me that I didn't do things the right way, she told the judge, her voice breaking up as she recounted that heartbreaking fact. There is no manual to tell a mother what to do when her child goes missing. I just did what God put in my heart to do. Cheryl then got to the most difficult, gut-wrenching portion of her remarks, telling the judge that not only did Denise kill my son, she stole my granddaughter Ansley, Mike's only child. For her entire life, Ansley was raised in the house with the murderers of her father, while being denied the love of her father's family. She was told that Grandmama Miss Cheryl was crazy and would hurt her. I have no relationship with her since she was five and a half years old. Oh my God. She told Judge Hankinson that no amount of prison time will bring Mike back to me. I don't know if I will ever have Ansley in my life again because of the damage her mother has done. I'm asking you to lock Denise Merrill Williams Winchester up for the rest of her life with no chance of parole. She has already lived 18 years longer than my son. She got to watch Mike's daughter grow up. Nick, Mike, and I didn't, she said, tears now flowing down her face. She implored the judge, please don't allow Denise to ever be around any of her future grandchildren because one generation of Williams' children growing up around murderers is enough. This one really hurt me, though. For the rest of my life, as I try to sleep at night, I will see my son clinging to a tree stump in Lake Seminole in the dark, knowing that his best friend is trying to kill him. I will hear his voice screaming for help. I wasn't there to help him. It will haunt me forever. Oh, my God. <sighs> Just need a moment. But, like, that's really important for her to end on that. Yeah. Like, think about how you feel when you hear Echo cry from another room because she tripped. And you're like, oh, God, I should have been there because I could have stopped that. Yeah. And that's times infinity million. Yeah, so Cheryl was crying throughout, obviously, because this is unbelievably emotional. And by the time they finished, Stephen Epstein wrote that everyone in the gallery was crying. Everyone was crying when they heard this. Even the attorneys were having a hard time, like... Keeping it together. Everyone yeah. was having a hard time keeping it together. It was so emotional. Well, Cheryl got her wish for the maximum sentence for her former daughter-in-law, Denise received life in prison without the possibility of parole for the murder and 30 additional years for the conspiracy. Thank God. Unfortunately for Cheryl and all of us, the story is not yet over. In January of 2020, Denise Williams appealed her conviction and life sentence based on the fact that there was no evidence that she was involved in the commission of the murder. As a result, in November of 2020, Denise's murder conviction was overturned. However, the conspiracy to commit murder conviction was upheld, as was the 30-year sentence that had accompanied it. Great. So her current release date is scheduled for Valentine's Day 2047. She will be 77 or 78 years old at the time, I believe. And Brian, I believe, gets out in 2036. So I think that Cheryl fought, of course, to hopefully maintain the original conviction of first-degree murder. And she fought and she lost that one. And I'm sure that's heartbreaking. But I do think missing out on all of her daughter's formative experiences, meeting somebody, getting married, yep. having children is a good punishment. Yeah. Because that's what, I mean, she at least gets visitation. Like she can still see her daughter. Yeah. She can receive pictures. She gets to be a part of it. So 
it's not the same, not even remotely, but at least she's going to be denied that. Yeah. Yeah. And by all accounts, she has a good relationship with Ansley. I believe that Ansley believes that Brian did it to get back at her mother and that she was not involved in the murder. I mean, I do. I believe she was. Yeah. Yeah. Why would he say that if she wasn't? Yeah, I don't think he was well, but I don't think he made the whole thing up. I also don't think he would have done it if he didn't believe there was an upside of being with her and sharing in that wealth and that money. Yeah. And I even think that maybe she did genuinely like that boss of hers because no one really wants to have a relationship with their boss unless... Like, no one's like, oh, this would be a great cover because that gets you in trouble as well. Yeah. I do think there must have been a real relationship with her and that guy, Charlie. But I do think that the first, like, attempt at dating somebody, like, from their high school was kind of a cover to, like, ease everybody into dating and make them think that that was the guy she dated. Yeah. That she hadn't been seeing Brian this entire time because it would throw suspicion off. Yeah. Those are my gut feelings about the situation. But, yeah, I mean, I think that the people who lost everything in this obviously are... The Williams family, Cheryl and Nick and his now family. So our hearts go out to them. In conclusion, I'm just going to bring it back. I'm going to do a call back to don't F your coworkers. Don't F your coworkers. Yeah. And how about we don't F our friend's husband? Oh, like yeah. general girl code, guy code. Friend per- code. Person code. Yeah. That's just being a good human being. Yeah. Let's not do that. Yeah, that's gnarly, man. So low, low. What a double betrayal. Yeah. Oof. Yes. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one is murdered. We love you guys so much. Hope you are rolling into this holiday season with a Yankee candle blaring. Is it blaring? What is it? What is the smell? What's like the equivalent of blaring for smells? Wafting? Yeah, maybe that one, yeah. <laughs> and uh, we'll have some... Some good stuff coming up for you in the month to be. I think we're going to try to release a couple more current affairs and got some goodies on Patreon. Things. Three Patreons in December. Yeah, so stay well, tuned. Fingers crossed. We have three plans, so we'll try to get to all of them. But thank you, as usual, for listening. I love you guys so much. Bye. Bye. Bye.